Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Seriously Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. Uh, Seriously Risky Business is the podcast we do here at Risky Biz HQ, where I speak with Tom Uren about the uh, newsletter that he's written this week. He writes the Seriously Risky Business newsletter uh, that goes out on Substack. You can find a link to that at risky.biz slash subscribe. Uh, this week's uh, edition of the show is brought to you by Airlock Digital. They make a terrific uh, allow listing uh, solution, which is, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, regular listeners know I'm a huge fan of it. Um, it's it's affordable. It works really well at scale. It's it's very, very cool. You can check them out at airlockdigital.com. And uh, yeah, Tom joins me now to talk through the newsletter. G'day, Tom. G'day, Patrick. How are you? Good, good. And uh, yeah, you've, uh, as usual, you've covered a couple of things uh, this week that we're going to talk about. Uh, the first is that CISA and NSA uh, put out a list so they've got their, their known exploited vulnerability database and they've spun up this other thing, which is like a, you know, top 10 known misconfigurations among the organizations that they deal with. And it makes for pretty grim reading, right? Because these are very much security 101 types of misconfigurations. Like, you know, have access control lists and patch your software and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, you make the point that, you know, CISA and NSA deal with the defense industrial base, you know, state and federal government and critical infrastructure operators. And if that's where they are, who knows where the broader, you know, business world is, right? And, 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 and it's just a bit grim. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's part of what you're, you're saying here, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So the even to get attention from NSA or CISA, you need to have some sort of priority. So they're not just going around... They're not going around uh, doing testing everyone. And, you know. <laughs> That's right. It's not a random selection of organisations. It's the ones that the US government thinks are important enough to take the time and effort to do some sort of security assessment. So it's got you know red team, blue team, uh, security assessments, a whole lot of stuff mixed together. And uh, they come up with about 10 different things that are... None of them are, you know, you haven't implemented your zero trust network quite correctly. They're yeah. all just really basic stuff. Yeah. And I kind of looked at those lists and, and this is the whole thrust of the report or the advisory is that there's stuff that the network owner can do and you're not doing that right and you should do better. And so those sorts of things might be things like poor password policies. <laughs> it sort of spells out if you've got a poor password policy, people can crack your passwords really easily. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you people need to do better. But then there's a second category of errors in there, which are really errors that are kind of, um, I guess in rugby union, you might call it a hospital pass, where a vendor has created a system and they ship it to you and by default it's insecure. Yeah. So the examples they use there are default credentials um, and there's a whole list of things that that's commonly in, uh, insecure or legacy protocols that are enabled by default, um, insecure or overly permissive standard configurations. So, I mean, this is like, you know, time warp for me, right? Because this was <laughs> the sort of stuff that we used to criticize Microsoft for you know, 20 years ago, which is like when you install a Windows NT machine, does it really need to have a web server running on it and file shares and all of this stuff just like <laughs> immediately listening uh, on its network interface? And the answer is obviously no. And Microsoft eventually ratcheted that down. But, you know, we're slow learners, aren't we? 
you know, it's it in. is very slow. So I've noticed in yeah. the last couple of months, Microsoft's made some announcements that directly address some of these criticisms. Yeah. So I think uh, just was it just this week they're talking about eventually deprecating NTLM. NTLM. Yeah. And yeah, and then nuking VB script as well. But, you know, like, funnily enough, in this week's sponsor interview, which was um, Catalan Kimpanu talking to the founders of Airlock Digital, they actually had something to say on this. Uh, D- Daniel Shell, who's one of the co-founders and the CTO there, he's quite funny, um, said, yeah, they, they'll pull out VB script this week, but next week they'll put in Python. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's such a moving target. Uh, you know, all of this is such a moving target. But there are some just straightforwardly dumb things like, you know, interfaces open to external networks with default creds and things like that. Like there are certainly things where governments could pressure vendors to make some changes that would, you know, scale out and be meaningful, I think, is the is the point. Uh, yeah, the way I thought about this is that organisations are already struggling. So you don't need to sell them stuff that makes it worse, <laughs> basically. Yeah. They need all the help they can get. And so that's... One of the other key messages in the advisory is that software manufacturers must reduce the prevalence of these misconfigurations. Um, So there's very much a push on across the federal government that that's the message. Um, Now, they've got a parallel effort to this kind of wrap-up of misconfigurations, which is a guidance document about what is secure by design. What do, you, what do we mean? How would you do that? And this week they released a document, uh, the second version of their secure by design guidance document. And at one level, I find it very funny in that they've got these high level principles about how you would do this. And those high level principles are really targeted at senior leadership in a vendor. And their their statements like, Embrace radical transparency and accountability and take ownership of security, custom, customer security outcomes and lead from the top. Mm. And those I thought were um, totally unconvincing. If I'm a product vendor and I get those statements, I'm like radical transparency. That doesn't sound good. That sounds bad. Yeah. I don't want that. Yeah. I want more profit and more money. Um, right. So at the All very I want to be hu- telling... The market and the shareholders is how great everything is. That's, <laughs> That's right. That's not transparency. Yeah. It's all blue sky. Everything's <laughs> terrific. Um, so I found that very funny, but I also didn't see what a realistic alternative is in the yeah. sense that um, the... Well, I mean, th- then again, I mean, CISA is separate to this, publishing a lot of guidance for vendors on what they need to do. You know, well, secure by de- design, secure by default, yep. blah, 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 blah. So this sort of, you know... A, What's amazing about all of the stuff coming out of the US government at the moment is actually how coherent it is. You know, like everybody's singing from the same songbook. You've even got the SEC putting pressure on uh, companies, listed companies. Well, you know, maybe you need to be this high to enter, you know, and I'm expecting like and doing other things like demanding um, disclosure of incidents. And that's been controversial because no one's really sure what all that's going to mean in practice. But, you know, they're all moving towards the same thing which is everyone needs to do a bit better on this stuff that goes for the vendors it goes for the for the people using the technology um and it's going to have to be incremental because like even though you look through this list and you're like oh it's all basic stuff like bad patch management you ever looked at how much effort goes into actually standing up good patch management like it's very easy to sit back and say these things are all basic um but it doesn't mean they're easy 
You know, no, and the fundamentals what, are hard. Where I was going to go with that is that the document also contains a whole heap of, I think, really practical advice for well practitioners. Yeah, um, and for the for the actual users of the tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's this funny mix of um, very Pom-poms high level and aspirational stuff. language for the vendors. Yeah, <laughs> and right. then and then practical advice for the users. Yeah, and um, I, and uh, what I think it points out to is that. CISA itself doesn't have a whole lot of leverage over how vendors behave. So it can issue a whole lot of advice and it's trying to reach for something that will convince vendors to to hop on this journey i guess i think though i and think so, though that it's a that it's a signal to the to the to the vendors it's a signal to the market because the yes. federal government writ large does listen to cisa and eventually you might find some of this stuff creeping into procurement agreements and you know it's exactly what the document says you yeah, should yeah. put this in procurement agreements if you're buying um, software you should think about what they call them artifacts you know what are the pieces of evidence that a vendor can stack up to say that um, they don't suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And they say, and I, I thought this was good. They say there's no single piece of evidence they can provide you, but if they've got several, um, they call them artifacts that yeah. are indicative. You know, that's that's some evidence. And they, um, the, the whole idea is to spin up a culture of wanting secure products and wanting to sell secure products. So yeah. I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to like diss the document. I just thought that that particular high-level part was funny, and it's funny because it points out a point of weakness, I guess. And so I thought that there's parts in there, especially around the transparency, that other parts of the US government could pick up on and try, and if they've got regulatory power, encourage some of those to become standard practice. Um, So, for example, um, you know, how many, what percentage of people patch... Um, how easy or what percentage of your customers use MFA, that kind of thing that would encourage people to think about it and try and actually take steps without necessarily forcing them to do it. And I think yeah. that would also be a... Well, that's the transparency bit, isn't it? When you've got yeah, one vendor right. where 10% of its customers use MFA, that might suggest using MFA is hard, where you know the other one, 95%, suggests that it's borderline mandatory to the customers of that service. Like, which one are you going to pick? Yeah, and so I think there's the document contains uh, not exactly a blueprint, but some good ideas about how you could encourage vendors. Other parts of the government could encourage vendors. Yeah. So that was one of the the things I took out of the that um, guidance document. I mean, it was interesting. I had when this first landed, I discussed it with our colleague Catalan Kimpanu, who writes Risky Business News. Uh, it's our three times weekly newsletter. If anyone's interested, uh, again risky.biz slash subscribe to find that one. Um, but yeah, when it, when it first landed, I mean, Catalan's take, and I think it's entirely reasonable, is like, my God, you know, we're, we're still telling people to maybe patch your stuff. Like, what's the point of this? And I guess though, you know, you've got to start somewhere, right? And that's, it's so often when you and I talk about various government initiatives, some of them might look a little bit baby steps, but, you know, that's where you've got to start, right? I think... When it comes to a whole lot of the security industry, there's been a very long time where it really hasn't mattered all that much in the sense that you could have very large breaches and the companies themselves would not suffer. Yeah. And so I think ransomware kind of changes that. I also well, think, I think I think also the, though, Tom, I don't think they really suffer all that much still. You know, most of the time when there's a ransomware attack or a breach, 
you know, the share price might take a temporary hit, but then it's right back there. So that's why I think there's kind of a role for government here is if companies know, oh, well, we got ransomware and all of our customer data got lost, but we can just put out a statement saying we take everyone's security seriously and that the attackers were sophisticated and then our share price is going to recover. Like what, what incentive is there to do it better? So, you know, having government come in and start, you know, kicking people around a little bit, I don't know, kind of seems I, good. I also think that government thinks that this is more important than ever because of the nature of technological competition. Yes. So that kind of um, segues into another piece. Well, I was, about. Just, I was just about to say, like, <laughs> awesome segue. Uh, and I'm very proud. I, I put the headline on this one, which is five eyes to watch sticky fingers. Uh, and, you know, we've seen just more and more uh, uh, announcements, initiatives, all sorts of stuff coming out of the, uh, the, the various Five Eyes countries talking about uh, the issue of IP theft. And we're not just talking via cyber means, although that's a part of it. Um, you know, lots of discussion around protecting IP, whether it's held by universities or like AI companies or whatever it is. Um, I think the Five Eyes sort of uh, domestic intelligence agencies like the FBI, uh, ASIO here and whatnot, MI5 uh, in the UK are, are increasingly looking at how to protect their their technological edge against, you know, people who might want to obtain that technology. They mean China. <laughs> they were <laughs> amazingly explicit. So the they, they were this time, right? So, yeah, yeah. So the FBI hosted a, uh, they called it a Five Eyes Summit of Security Intelligence. Although it's not really five eyes, is it? Well, yeah, I know. I had that problem as well, but I, yeah. I'm, I'm trying not to get sucked and, into it. And just for listeners that. who might be confused why we're, why we're going down this road, it's because Five Eyes refers to a you know, very specific signals intelligence cooperation agreement. You know, it's got nothing to do with the FBI or ASIO or anything else to do with you know, You might have a five-country ministerial meeting, which is a thing. It's not Five Eyes. <laughs> but this is something that only bothers people who are way too in the weeds in this stuff. So fine, yeah, it's yeah, a five yeah, eyes yeah. meeting. Let's go. Yeah, so you, you did my rant for me. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the, the agencies you've mentioned, which are the, in the ones that have responsibility for internal security uh, yeah. and counter espionage. Um, and so they had a public meeting of the heads of these five agencies, which is the first time ever. And they basically just talked about the threat of intellectual property theft. And so because it's FBI, the FBI director spoke about uh, a human threat. So a, a US wind turbine, turbine company had intellectual property stolen by an insider. And that insider was recruited by their Chinese venture joint partner <laughs> so there's uh but I mean, no how friends old in is business. that one is that recent because i remember hearing about the wind turbine one for the last 10 or 15 years i don't know he didn't yeah the, the report i see didn't the report i saw didn't state the date now the one i thought was interesting is that in australian media they talked about the head of our Australian security intelligence organisation, Mike Burgess, he spoke of an Australian company who was making something like a, um, a security monitoring something or other. And they found that they were getting product returns <laughs> that weren't their product. They were counterfeit products that were branded the same, but built with cheaper components. And so they were breaking. So they eventually figured out that what had happened is that someone had given one of the employees a USB at an international conference that was used to compromise that computer 
get onto the network, steal the intellectual property to then make counterfeit products. And I thought that was an interesting example. And he explicitly said that it, that IP, the intellectual property, was passed from the intelligence services to a state-owned enterprise that then yeah. mass-produced it. So yeah. he's, he's directly drawn the link between um, Chinese intelligence work, state-owned enterprise, intellectual property theft, damaging of an Australian company's business. See, see, I've always thought the solution to this isn't to have ASIO, you know, trying to stop the theft. It's to identify cases where this has happened and apply targeted sanctions, you know, in cooperation. So when you can prove that someone is selling wind turbines that are based on stolen intellectual property, you sanction that company. And okay, they might pick up some domestic sales in, in China. Uh, but, you know, you can get pretty aggressive with sanctions like that. And if they start trying to sell them to other countries, you can have a word. And, you know, that's the sort of thing I think might be a, yeah, it's never going to eliminate it, but it might perhaps be a bit more effective than trying to do hardcore count, domestic counter-espionage, you know? I think the whole field has, the whole cybersecurity field, the problem is that countries are not willing to do things that truly deter other countries. And so that's yeah. an example that feels like um, it could be escalatory and that China is not afraid of throwing... could wind up with a trade its... war on your hands, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that we That's how lobsters get left on the tarmac, Tom. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> where, why we end up with second best solutions because people yeah. aren't willing to do the best solutions. So the <laughs> like my personal view is the way you deter people is by making what they're doing way more painful than otherwise and we've just yeah. never done that ever um, and so when people say deterrence has failed I say well we've never really tried yeah yeah well that's my line on the you know everyone's like oh offensive actions against ransomware crews haven't worked and it's like oh did we did we really try that did we <laughs> instead of just you know I mean we, I, we've dipped our toe uh, we've definitely dipped our toe but uh, yeah about it all right tom that seems like a good place to leave it uh thank you very much uh for another terrific newsletter always great to read that and uh yeah either myself or adam boilo will be uh doing this again with you next week thanks a lot thanks a lot pat